really thankful that you teachers are here. And how many of you here either went to school or are in school? Would you raise your hand? That should be pretty much everybody. All right. And this whole concept of education and learning. How many of you have ever asked the question, what in the world's going on with education? Have you ever asked that? And I know that you teachers and principals that you feel this way. And I know sometimes a mandate will come down from on high. And those of you in the administration, you look at it and you go, how in the world am I going to explain this to my teachers? Then when the teachers get it, they say, how in the world am I going to do this in the classroom? And there's a lot of frustration. And one of the reasons that I'm doing this, that we wanted to have this service today, is because there really are issues in American education. Would you all agree with that? There are issues in American education. But the problem is, and I think that this is a big problem and a mistake that is made, is it's blamed on the teachers. And I've made that mistake. And the teachers here in our church helped me to understand that. (laughs) It really does. What happens is every time you turn on the news, there's some teacher doing something stupid. And what it appears is trying to happen, this, this person who does something really dumb, they're trying to paint every teacher in America with the brush of that person. You, you all know what I'm talking about? And it's, I know that it's infuriating for the teachers. I know that it is. Because they really do have a very difficult, difficult job. And so what I want to do today is I want to explain as well as I can in a short period of time what in the world is going on with education. And I think that when you see what is going on, you'll know better how to pray for your teachers, and you teachers will know better how to stand. So turn your Bibles with me to the book of John, John chapter 8. Now, I think we all know that Jesus Christ is the greatest teacher to ever live. He is the most brilliant man to ever live. The Bible says this about Jesus. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the very epitome of wisdom. He's the very epitome of truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the very epitome of wisdom and knowledge and truth. So look what the Bible says in verse 29. Uh, Look at verse 30. And as he spake these words, so John 8, 30, and as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Now, what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. And the Bible defines a disciple as one who follows with the intent to learn and learns with the intent to obey. That's what a disciple of Jesus Christ is. Then look at what it says in verse 32. And I think everyone has heard this verse. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And I think this is that this verse is the motto of more universities in the United States than any other motto. That's interesting, isn't it? So this truth, it adorns the walls of the universities, but it no longer animates the minds. Because we are are trying to function in a society where people say, I know that the truth cannot be known. I am sure that nothing is sure. 
I am absolutely sure that there are no absolutes. And you understand that those statements are all nonsense. They're, they're the technical definition of nonsense. That would be like me saying, I don't live in a house and I don't like the house I live in. It's nonsense. It's a sentence that absolutely makes no sense. Does that make sense? <laughs> and that's, that's the culture that we live in. And we looked a few weeks ago at the concept of postmodernism. And the, the modernism was there are no absolutes. Well, now postmodernism is I don't care. Right? So this is the expression that our teachers get most of the time. No interest. No animation. Now, young people, I don't want you to think I'm criticizing you. I'm describing you. There's a difference. <laughs> this, is, this is such an interesting thing. Parents and teachers, what we are experiencing with our young people is a culture that doesn't pay attention to the news. When you get into the 20 and 30-somethings, they don't watch television. They, they watch Netflix or Hulu. They don't get any news. The only news they get is what comes through their, their Twitter feed or on Facebook. That's the information that they get. The concept of actually reading a book written on paper is completely foreign. So in this generation, the books that we write and the materials that we put out, one of the first questions we get is, do you have this in digital format? Because that's where people are. You know, we publish the Ancient Baptist Journal. This is a 200-page book that comes out four times a year. It's an academic journal on history and doctrine of the Baptists. And it's just interesting what it's the challenge of getting this generation to read. How many of you teachers recognize that problem? It's very difficult. It's very difficult. And so what happens is we need to understand that there has the, that the foundation of society, which is truth, has been removed. The rug has been pulled out from beneath the feet of our young people. And so you teachers, as you're trying to give truth to a child, many times those, child have, those children have no concept of what truth is. And so what I want to do today is I want to give some of the history of that and the origin of that, and then we're going to try and give you some solutions for it. First of all, education. This is from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. The bringing up as of a child, instruction, formation of manners. Education comprehends all... Now, now how many of you teachers, this formation of manners? That's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, that's, that's really gone from our culture. Whoever would have thought that you have to tell a boy to pull his pants up. Right? It's interesting. It was only plumbers that we had to worry about that before. It was just a different world. So education comprehends all that series of instruction and discipline which is intended to enlighten the understanding, correct the temper, and form the manners and habits of youth and fit them for usefulness in their future stations. Isn't that a good definition of education? Now, I know all of you parents, this is what you are attempting to accomplish. I know that. I know that. And I know that you teachers wish that the parents were better accomplishing this so that when they come to you, you have something to work with. All right? And I, so I understand that's where we are. 
Here's, here's the, a continuation of the definition. To give children a good education in manners, arts, science, and science is important. To give them a religious education is indispensable. And an immense responsibility rests on the parents and guardians who neglect these duties. Wow. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, let me ask you all a question. Did Noah Webster have anything to do with education in, in America? He knows what he's talking about. When I was in fourth grade, I went to Noah Webster Elementary School in West Hartford, Connecticut, and his house was right across the street. And so I was always interested in Webster, and I constantly refer to the 1828 Dictionary, and the 1828 Dictionary constantly refers you to Scripture. It's very interesting. Now, we're not going to get into it, but all of that was removed for a reason. I'll give some of that in a minute. Now, education today. Now, we know that Horace Mann is the father of the public school system in the United States. And so if you've been heard of Antioch College, Yellow Springs, Ohio, that came out of a commune in New Harmony, Indiana, of, of socialist utopians. Socialist. Now, you understand every socialist is a utopian, right? Because it doesn't exist anywhere but in their minds. I said this, I'd like to go to Bernie Sanders' house and take his car. He's a socialist, you know. And socialists believe in common ownership of all property. I'll just say it's my turn to use it. Right? Isn't that interesting? We're going to talk about critical thinking in a minute. That What I just did is critical thinking. It's applying reality to the concept. That's critical thinking. And, of course, the definition of critical thinking has changed uh, intentionally. Um, you teachers will recognize the term neologisms. And the idea is you make up new words or you redefine old words so that you can use a language that people simply do not understand and you can infuse it with your own meaning. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, if you want to destroy a people, you must first sever them from their roots. And so you sever them from their family roots, you sever them from their national roots, and you sever them from their linguistic roots and people can no longer communicate. It's very interesting. And so what they do is they don't stop communication. They fill the words with other meanings. So one generation is hearing one thing, and another generation is hearing another. And so the mind and the heart is changed. John Dewey, so Horace Mann was the father of public education, and John Dewey is the father of progressive education. We still live in the progressive education era. And it was founded and started by John Dewey. Let's look at what John Dewey believed. This is from his book, Education Today. He said, I believe that education is the fundamental method of social progress and reform. And what he means by social progress is Marxism, socialism. Now, let me say this. I had meant to give this, this oh, disclaimer, if you will. Um, we, everything that I say today is coming from a Christian perspective, from a Bible-believing Christian perspective. I make no claim of objectivity. I am very much biased toward the truth. I do believe that truth exists. I do believe that there are absolutes. And we are not taking any of these quotes out of context. And we're giving the sources for every one of these quotes so you can go and check it out. Please don't just take my word for it. Check it out. And if any of you would like 
my notes. I have an entire binder full of notes, and we'll make a copy of that for you so you can, you're able to check all of this information out for yourself. John Dewey was a socialist progressive. I read four articles that he wrote in the 1920s and 30s about his trips to the Soviet Union where he studied their schools and their system, and he wanted to bring that Soviet system back to us. How many of you think that's a good idea? That's John Dewey. That's who he is. That's who he was. And we'll see through his own statements what he was trying to accomplish. He said, I believe that it is the business of everyone interested in education to insist upon the school as the primary and most effect, effective instrument of social progress and reform. Now, I know that you teachers, when you go into your school, your goal is not to be an agent of social progress or reform. Is that right? Would you all agree with that statement? That is not your goal. Your goal is to teach English. Your goal is to teach math or to teach history. That's your goal. But you need to know that those who have set the structure for the system had an agenda. And he is telling us what his agenda is. It's social reform. He said this, I believe in this way the teacher is the prophet of the true God and usherer in of the true kingdom of God. Now, he's not talking about the God of the Bible, and we'll see that in a minute. We certainly cannot teach religion as an abstract essence. We have got to teach something as religion, and that means practically some religion. Our schools are performing an infinitely significant religious work. Now, how many of you have heard that we're not supposed to have religion in schools? How many of you have heard that? Right? And we hear that as Christians, we hear that constantly. Not from the teachers and not from the principals. It's from people like, what is it, the Organization Against or for the Separation of Church and State and all these, the ACLU, they all start saying these things, all right? Well, that's not what the founder of progressive education believed. He believed you had to have religion in schools. It is their business to do what they can to prevent all public educational agencies from being employed in ways which inevitably impede the recognition of the spiritual import of science and of democracy. Now, remember, we have really, again, that redefining of words. We do not live in a democracy. All the people that keep pushing democracy are socialists. All right? We, we, believe, we live in a representative republic. It's a different system. The French Revolution was a democracy. How did that work out? Let them eat cake, right? Off with their heads. Different system. We're a representative republic. He wants a democracy, which is why he enjoyed the Soviet Union, all right? So the import of science and democracy, and hence of that type of religion, which will be the fine flower of the modern spirit's achievement. We make a religion out of, he said, we make a religion of our education. We profess unbounded faith in its possibilities. We point with pride to its advance. We term instruction and art and school management a profession. Faith in education signifies nothing less than belief in the possibility of deliberate direction of the formation of human disposition and intelligence. So he said that religion is vital for a school, but that religion is education. And so they became temples 
or seminaries of education. That's the terminology that was used. Let me tell you what that is. Let me give you an analogy. That is like having faith in faith. Faith has to have an object. All right, so for the Christian, we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith as revealed in the Word of God. So the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed through the words of Scripture. We have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. Now, I know, again, that Christianity has been redefined. But biblical Christianity, a biblical Christian, is a person who follows the Lord Jesus Christ, believes who He is, and believes the Word of God. That's a biblical Christian. Now, you might be here today and you say, well, I'm a Christian and I don't believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian and I don't believe in the Bible. Well, that, that would be like me saying I'm the Queen of England. Hey, that's how I identify. That's how I identify. Who are you to tell me I'm not the Queen of England? Bow to me. Kiss my ring. That's the same thing as a person saying I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in Jesus Christ. It makes absolutely no sense. It, it, again, that is... I know that truth cannot be known. It's nonsense. Saying that you're a Christian without believing in Christ is nonsense. Now, I hope that doesn't sound ugly. I'm just trying to define the words. All right? We're just defining what Christianity is. We're defining what truth is. Now, imagine if education is your religion. It's interesting. He said this. If we have ground to be religious about anything, we may take education religiously. Well, we need to define what he meant. So he didn't only mean that education was religion because he understood that's nonsense. There had to be a faith that was taught. There is a, a book, it was written by Charles, it was called Humanism, A New Religion by Charles Francis Potter. He was a Unitarian pastor. I have several books where... Uh, where this man, Charles Francis Potter, did debates with a pastor named Stratton, pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Kathy Lee Gifford's brother pastors that church now. That's interesting, isn't it? It's Independent Baptist Church, believes like we do. But so the, Charles Francis Potter, he said this, humanism is a new type of religion altogether. He said, is, human, is humanism a religion? It is both a religion and a philosophy of culture. So Potter and John Dewey, they ended up writing a document called the Humanist Manifesto. And the Humanist Manifesto is the Bible for the education system that they wanted to establish. Now, here's the deal. I know that none of you teachers believe what has just been said. I, I recognize that. Don't think that I am saying this is what you believe. What I am saying is the reason that you are frustrated in your profession is because this is the foundation of it. And we'll go on. We'll see some more. All right. He said this, education is the most powerful ally of humanism. Now, let me define what humanism is. It is a way to explain existence apart from the supernatural. So the humanist doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe that God or the supernatural has any place. It doesn't have any place in the schools or any place in education. Now, the only problem is if... If God is real and you have an educational system that doesn't allow that possibility, now you have to come up with an explanation that does not comport with reality. And that's the situation that we're in. 
That's the situation, all right? So education is the most powerful ally of humanism, and every public school... It, not, this is not me. This is Charles Francis Potter. He said, and every public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic, that's, a, that's a, someone who believes in God, what can the theistic Sunday schools meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching. So now you, you have people, you, you know, have you ever watched these man-on-the-streets interviews at, at, at the universities? And now you'll go, to, you'll go to a university, the best universities in the world, and you'll ask them, was the Holocaust wrong? And you know what they'll say? Well, I can't say it's wrong. It's not right for me. But I can't say that it's wrong. Because that, that concept of absolutes has been removed and replaced with multiculturalism. Now, the teaching of multiculturalism is this, that all cultures are equally valid. And they're an equally valid expression of humanity. And, of course, those of you who come to church here have heard me say this. Ravi Zacharias, someone said that to him. And he said, well, in one culture they say, love your neighbor. In another culture they say, eat your neighbor. Which do you prefer? <laughs> and if multiculturalism were true, why, why are people from South America breaking the law to come to North America? Right. If the cultures are equal, why do they want to be here? The United States is one of the only countries you'd have to build a wall to keep people out. Those nations, you'd have to build a wall to keep them in. I thought the cultures were equal. See, this is what happens. This is called critical thinking. When you apply reality, when you apply reality to the situation, the conversation changes. It changes. So you teachers are trying to impart truth to people who do not believe in truth. And it's a struggle. So you discipline a child. You have a child that's not behaving in class. And so you discipline the child, and you go through the, all of the steps to discipline the child. And that child goes to the principal's office, and the principal calls in the parents. And the parents are mad at the principal because little Johnny would never do anything wrong, and you're just being mean. <laughs> have you teachers ever experienced anything like that? Has that ever happened? How many of you saw the video of the, of the police officer pulling the girl out of her her desk. How many of you have seen that? Man, that brought outrage, all kinds of outrage. I'm just telling you that a hundred years ago, do you know what would have happened? That teacher would have had a switch or a whip or a board of education applied to the seat of learning. How many of you, I'll delicately ask, are old enough to have been in a school where they spanked. Is there anyone here? No, look around. Look around at this. Kids, look, look back here. Look at this. Look at these old people. <laughs> and I'm telling you, how many of you can even imagine the teacher and the principal and the counselor talking to you before a police officer? Can you, does that even register in your brain? And then to see the whole nation up in arms. Do you know what happens when the police come? Do you know what happens? Violence. Because that's how they enforce the law. You either do what they say or you're in handcuffs. 
Is that right? And what has happened is the concept of right and wrong and obedience to authority, submission to authority, has been removed from the culture. And then how are the teachers supposed to handle those students? See, this is explaining the issue that you have in your classrooms. Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller, um, he was... he started at the United Nations in 1948, and he became the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. And he is the one who established... How many of you have heard of Common Core? Anyone here heard of Common Core? You teachers love it, right? You just, how many of you enjoy the record-keeping that you have to do right now? How many of you enjoy that? All right, you can thank this guy right here, Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller, he wrote the World Core Curriculum for the United Nations. And it has four strands. Oneness with the planet. What does that mean? How many of you think that comes from Christianity? It doesn't. It doesn't. It's very interesting. They started with humanism. All right? That's where it started. That was their religion. By the time you get to Robert Mueller, it's a different religion. And you'll see. So four strands, oneness with the planet, unity with the people, Marxism, harmony with self. That's for the schizophrenics, I guess. <laughs> and then evolution through time. Oneness with the planet, unity with the people, harmony with self, evolution through time. How many of you teachers feel encouraged right now? All right, what does this have to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic? It's very interesting. And here's, here is my premise for you teachers. One of the reasons that you are so frustrated in your profession, and I know that you don't hate your jobs. I know that you love the kids and you love teaching. But one of the reasons for the frustration is the goal is no longer education in the system. And here's my example for it. If you have children that can't read, all right, you have them for seven hours a day. If you have children that can't read, what you ought to do is put them in a room with a good teacher for four, five, six, seven hours a day until they can read. If you have a child that can't do math, because the two most important skills for a young person to have any quality of life is reading and math. How many of you agree with that? Is that right? Have any quality of life. Now, of course, we understand as Christians, it's belief in the Bible, but you've got to be able to read the Bible. Right? And so reading and math. And so if you have children that can't do those things, then, you, then your ultimate responsibility is to be able to teach that child to do those things while you have them. Doesn't that make sense? Right. What would happen if you did that? You wouldn't get federal funding. Yeah. It's very interesting. So apparently the object of the system is not education. It is a kind of social and political programming. And we'll see that that is the intention. Now, this Robert Mueller, he is the, he is the one who established this World Core curriculum that is the foundation for the Common Core curriculum. Then, he started a school in um, Arlington, Texas. And there, there are many different branches of this school called the Mueller School. And this is what it says. This is from the introduction to his book, Robert Mueller School, World Core Curriculum Foundation. It's page one. 
The underlying philosophy upon which the Robert Mueller School is based, and remember, this is the basis for Common Core, the underlying philosophy upon which the Robert Mueller School is based will be found in the teaching set forth in the books of Alice A. Bailey by the Tibetan teacher, Dojababa Kul. I don't have any idea to say that. All right? And she generally identified him as the Tibetan. Who was the Tibetan? From Alice Bailey. So this is, Robert Mueller said this. This is the basis for his teaching. Alice Bailey, 1934. She wrote this book, The Externalization of the Hierarchy, and it claims that 1934 marks the beginning of the, quote, organizing of the men and women, group work of a new order, with progress defined by service, the work of the brotherhood, the forces of light, and out of the spoilation of all existing culture and civilization, the new world order must be built. Now, again, let me say this. The stuff I'm about to read is crazy. Let me just tell you, it's crazy. I may be crazy, but I didn't write this. These people are so crazy that when you actually say what they say, you sound crazy. All right? So Alice Bailey founded the Lucifer Publishing Company. They changed the name to the Lucis Trust. So this is the material that is the foundation for the Robert Mueller Schools and Common Core. So I went to the website of the Lucis Trust. It still exists. It was an NGO started out of the United Nations. And so it's very interesting. This is on their website today. If you go there today, this is what they say. The Lucis Trust is dedicated to the establishment of a new and better way of life for everyone in the world based on the fulfillment of the divine plan for humanity. Its educational activities promote recognition and practice of the spiritual principles and values upon which a stable and interdependent world society may be based. The esoteric philosophy of its founder, Alice Bailey, informs its activities which are offered freely throughout the world in eight languages. And there's their website. This is still from their website. The Esoteric Meaning of Lucifer. There are comments on the World Wide Web claiming that Lucifer's Trust was once called the Lucifer Trust. Such was never the case. Yes, it was called the Lucifer Publishing Company. Such was never the case. However, for a brief period of two or three years in the early 1920s, when Alice and Foster Bailey were beginning to publish the books, published under her name, they named their fledgling company Lucifer Publishing Company. So it wasn't called Lucifer Trust. It was called Lucifer Publishing Company. That's helpful. Now, how many of you, that would give you pause? Seriously, that would give you pause. Come on, kids, let's go to school and study Lucifer. Come on. Come on, kiddies. By 1925, the name was changed to Lucis Publishing Company and has remained so ever since. Both Lucifer and Lucis come from the same word root, Lucis meaning the Latin, being the Latin genitive case meaning of light. Not really. And they actually tell the truth here in a minute. This is all still from their website. The Bailey's reasons for choosing the original name are not known to us. But we can only surmise that they, like the great teacher H.P. Blavatsky, and I, I challenge you to study her. She's the father of theosophy, the father, mother, however she identified, <laughs> for whom they had enormous respect, sought to elicit a deeper understanding of the sacrifice made by Lucifer. 
Alice and Foster Bailey were serious students and teachers of theosophy, a spiritual tradition which views Lucifer as one of the solar angels, those advanced beings who theosophy says descended, thus the fall, from Venus to our planet eons ago to bring the principle of mind to what was then animal man. In the theosophical perspective, the descent of these solar angels was not a fall into sin or disgrace, but rather an act of great sacrifice, as is suggested in the name Lucifer, which means light bearer. How many think that sounds crazy? <laughs> this is the person that Robert Mueller based his teaching philosophy on by his own words in his own book. Alice Bailey in the United Nations. This is what she said. This is from the book, The Externalization of the Hierarchy. The new world religion must be based upon those truths which have stood the test of the ages. They are steadily taking shape in human thinking, and for them the United Nations, or United Nations fights. All right? So the externalization of the hierarchy. The hierarchy is a spiritual hierarchy of Lucifer and his fallen angels. And they express themselves in Mussolini and in Hitler and in Napoleon. That's according to Alice Bailey. And that's the foundation for Robert Mueller's writings. And remember, he was at the United Nations for more than 40 years. Of the 32 agencies, he founded 11 of them. Okay? Very important man. The Mueller School. The underlying philosophy upon which the Robert Mueller School is based will be found in the teaching set forth in the books of Alice A. Bailey by the Tibetan teacher. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this. The Tibetan was her spirit guide. A demon. A demon guide. Now, again, if you're a guest with us, you're one of the teachers, principal, coming from another place. Under, I did not make this up. Let me just be very clear on this. I think this is crazy. Okay? Now, listen to what he said. This was a speech he made to a group of students in Canada, which may explain the issue. Patrick, where are you? Okay, Canadians. He said this. You are not children of Canada. You are really living units of the cosmos because the earth is a cosmic phenomena. We are all cosmic units. This is why religions tell you you are divine. Does Christianity ever tell you you are divine? Apparently that one's been excluded. This is why religions tell you you are divine. We are divine energy. It is in your hands whether evolution on this planet continues or not. You'll see what I'm seeing right now. Evolution's not working right here on the front row. These guys. Adam, evolution stopped with you. Bam, right there. Can you imagine? Now, honestly, honestly, how many of you, how many, you, we have a lot of educated people in this room. How many of you educated people would ever make a statement like this? This is a statement of absolute radical religion. This is from the UN Education, Education for Sustainable Development Toolkit. I have it right here printed by the United Nations. See if this makes any sense to you. Generally, more highly educated people who have higher incomes consume more resources than poorly educated people who tend to have lower incomes. 
In this case, more education increases the threat to sustainability. Now, let me tell you something. That's complete nonsense. How many of you have ever been to an undeveloped country? Would you raise your hand? You can't even breathe. What they burn, the way that they use their natural resources, the water. When I was in Ghana, people, you had the road, and there was a ditch next to the road, and huts made of corrugated steel or cardboard or anything they could find, and planks across the ditch. The ditch was full of raw sewage. And the people would sit on the, on the, the, the planks and dangle their feet in the raw sewage to keep cool. We need to understand how dangerous multiculturalism is. And we need to understand how dangerous this globalistic agenda of the United Nations is. And the basis for the common core comes from this right here, sustainable development. That's the basis for modern education. Let me say this again. None of your teachers agree with this. None of, I I don't think, and if you do, come to me after the service and we'll talk about it. But I I don't think any, how many of you teachers here disagree with all of this that I have just said? You disagree with it. This is why often you are frustrated in your teaching role. Let me give you some examples of why. This is a book on communication that one of our teachers is taking a master's course right now, and this is required reading. And this is an example. U.S. Americans, isn't that a weird thing to say? It sounds like that girl from West Virginia or whatever it was that, you know, U.S. Americans and Iraqs don't have maps. That's what this sounds like. U.S. Americans refer to their ethnicity by providing a lengthy historical account of their family's many ethnic mergings. Others, especially those with a Euro-American heritage, will often simply refer to themselves as just an American or even a white American. I've never met anybody that referred to themselves as white Americans. It's interesting. But this is the way that these people think. Frequently, they are members of the U.S. dominant culture, which grew out of the Judeo-Christian religious traditions imported from Western Europe, and whose lineage is characterized by an extensive history of inter-ethnic Euro-American marriages. Martin and Nakayama write that many cultural practices associated with whiteness are beyond the awareness of the actual participants, but are more discernible by members of of excluded minority culture groups. Thus, whiteness can frequently be associated with positions of privilege. How many of you have heard of white privilege? You've heard of that, right? Then, the the next, so I just read this paragraph. The next heading is gender identity. Gender identity is quite different from biological sex or sexual identity. Do you remember when I talked about nonsense? That's nonsense. Your gender is based on physical characteristics. That's what it is. Again, go try to milk a bull. I think you're a cow. See, it's not reality. You understand? It's not reality. 
go to Alaska, get a, get a hunting license, and go bear hunting. And see what happens if you say, well, I think that mama bear is actually a daddy bear. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to jail. You're going to jail. So it says this, gender identity is quite different from biological sex or sexual identity. Gender is a socially constructed concept. That makes no sense at all. It's a lie. And it's, it's something that comes away, that it, it, it has removed from the truth. Let me give you an example of just how insane this is. In contrast to the rather rigid classifications of either male or female used by the United States and most Western European nations, some cultures offer a socially acceptable middle ground for transgender individuals. So it's like a person could say, I have three children, one of each. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I added that, by the way. Some cultures offer a sexually acceptable middle ground for transgender individuals. Some of the Native American Indian tribes accepted transgenders and even considered them to have special powers. Thailand's Kathuis, or lady boys, do experience some discrimination, but enjoy more social acceptance than in the U.S. counterparts. Now, I want you to understand something about Thailand. It is the center of human trafficking. It is the center of sexual abuse. People travel there to have relations with children. So let's use them to identify gender roles. Do you understand how wicked that is? That's what multiculturalism does. That's what multiculturalism does. It's wickedness. And so what happens, in order to become a teacher, you have to read that. And now you walk into a school and you have some kid that says they're identifying and you know what the truth is. And now you have to decide, am I going to tell the truth or am I going to go along with what I was required to read? And now you're faced with frustration. There's a school in Illinois that the Obama administration has just told they have to allow a boy that identifies as a girl to shower with the girls. Now, I want you to think about something. If a heterosexual boy walked in and did that, he would be arrested and charged with sexual assault, and he would have that on his record the rest of his life. Dave, is that right? And yet, if a person says, this is what I think I am, now it's no longer a crime. My question is, will we allow that to happen? Because I'm just telling you, I would die before that happened with my children. I would not allow that to happen. And so now you teachers are going to be put in a bad place. You shouldn't have to make the decision. The community should come alongside you and say, we will not tolerate this. You say, that wouldn't happen here. Has anyone heard of Troy? This is where we are. And I want to give you an example of how thinking and critical thinking has been destroyed or is being destroyed in the students. And you teachers, this is why you need to know what's going on. And I'm sure many of you do. I'm not, I hope I'm not talking down to you. you. Many of you know a lot more about this than I do. But this is a textbook that's used here in our city. It's called Across the Centuries. And I opened it to a section that was called Identifying Values. Now, you need to understand something. The word value in the dictionary always had an economic sense. 
didn't have anything to do with what you think is right or wrong. That's a modern construct. But when it's identifying values, this section is talking about the Spanish conquistadors and the Aztec and the Incas. Now, I want to read some of this to you, and let's, see, let's do some critical thinking. Here we are. Finally, the Spanish and the Aztec came from drastically different cultures. They had different ways of living and believing. Moctezuma believed that Cortez might have been a god and allowed him to walk freely into the capital city. Cortez, on the other hand, saw the Aztec culture as something pagan to be destroyed and replaced by the Christian faith. So they don't identify Moctezuma's religion, although his religion told him that Cortez was a god. But they don't identify it as a religion. Do you see how that's not allowing the child to discern between the two religions? Do you see that? The other thing is he was doing it in the name of the Christian religion. No, he was doing it in the name of Roman Catholicism. And so, again, multiculturalists want to paint all of Christianity by the excesses of Roman Catholicism in the, in the Middle Ages. It's very interesting. Do you know what I just did? I practiced critical thinking. That is the technical definition of critical thinking. All right, let's read on. The two groups even fought... Now, now I, want you to, I want you to see if you notice anything strange in this. All right? The two groups even fought by different rules. The Aztec usually fought only to take captives for sacrifice. The Spanish, however, fought to kill. You've got to take your brain out and play with it to write that sentence. I'm not making it up. Now, how many of you see that there's a problem with that sentence? Okay. What's the result of sacrifice? Death. All right? So now, you're going to like this. When they're describing the Aztec and their human sacrifice, listen to what it says. The reasons for human sacrifice are not clear. It was part of their religion. It's very clear. Many historians believe the Aztec used these human sacrifices to frighten their enemies. No, they used it to worship their god or their gods. Most of the people sacrificed by the Aztec were captives of war. The Aztec believed that whatever one station in life, if he were sacrificed, he would become a divine being. Many victims went willingly. Human sacrifice was great. Do you see how this is written? It's describing a heinous activity in positive terms. It's called moral equivalence. Do you know what this goes back to? This was a change in critical thinking, and this was called values clarification that started in about 1970, 1971. Values clarification was designed to change a child's <laughs> values. The values that he held, the values that he got from home, it was to teach him how to question those values. Well, I can tell you human sacrifice is still bad. All right? Now, here is probably the worst part. In the section called Identifying Values, now you're going to apply it. So now you're, this, is, this is under the critical thinking. It's, it's understanding critical thinking, identifying values. So we've learned about the Spanish conquistadors, the Aztec, and the Incas. Now we're going to apply it. Write down the values you and your classmates hold in common on these topics. Air pollution, environmental waste, diet, clothes, exercise. Compare your list with others. What does that have to do with the conquistadors? The Inca? The Aztec? What does that have to do with them? 
So what happens is you teachers, you're in an atmosphere where this is what you're dealing with. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Shirley McCune to the National Governors Association in 1989. You can go online and watch this speech. This, it, this was the kickoff of Common Core. She said, what is happening in America today is what is happening to Kansas in the Great Plains uh, and what is happening to Kansas in the Great Plains is not simply a chance situation in the usual winds of change. What it amounts to is a total transformation of our society. Does that sound like anything that happened in an election? So we have to anticipate what the future is and then move back and figure out what it is we need to do today. That's called anticipatory socialization or the social change function of schools. Should there be a social change function in the school? No. I don't, I don't believe so. You have to understand the breadth of the task that's before us, she continued. You cannot think about restructuring of education without understanding that our total society is in a crisis of restructuring, and you can't get away from it. What we are facing is a total restructuring of the society. So now here, this is the way that, that this will happen. In the reading recommendations for the Common Core curriculum, this is from their own agency. Recommended levels of insulation by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. That's going to give a kid a love for reading, isn't it? Department of Energy or Executive Order 13423, Strengthening Federal Environmental Energy and Transportation Management. What is that teaching the children? How many of you think that, the, that any president ought to strengthen environmental regulations through an executive order? What about the Congress? Isn't that interesting? How about data collection? How many of you teachers spend a significant portion of your day doing record keeping? Just raise your hands. Where does this come from? This is a, this right here, I took this right off of the Ohio website. This is a grant application. Ohio Statewide Longitudinal Data System Grant Proposal, uh, America Recovery and Reinvestment Act, taking the necessary actions to ensure effective use of P through 20 data. What is that? Preschool through age 20. So what all this data collection is, is they want to track your children from cradle to grave. And that's the statement that's used, from cradle to grave, to track different pieces of information. And I didn't take the time to fill out the information that they want you to get, but it's stuff that the government has no reason to have. And I'll tell you this, it is against the law for there to be a national database of student information. It's against the law. Check it out. Check it out. All of this is violating current and standing law. And our state is doing this, and it's all based on this United Nations P through 20 agenda. And this is the application. The start date, 7-1-2010, end date, 6-30-2015. Project director is Beth Julierat. The amount awarded, this is how much we got from the government to do get data collection, $5,135,883. And that's to gather information on you and your children. That's the idea. That's the idea. That's where it comes from. The progress of education. Dewey, what he wanted to do was he wanted everyone to be able to think in the same way. That's what progressive education is. That's socialism. And again, you can't bring everyone up. You have to bring the top people down. That's the only way that can be accomplished. So let's compare modern education to an eighth grade test in New Jersey in 1885. The student had to answer the following basic questions. These are only a, two, a few taken from the test. 
Find the sum of the square root of 16.7281 and the square root of 72 and a quarter. What's the square root of that? Now, some of you math people will have no problem doing these things. This was, this was for the general student to graduate from the eighth grade. A merchant offered some goods for uh, $1,170.90 cash or $1,206 payable in 30 days. Which was the better offer for the customer, money being worth 10%? Eighth grade. U.S. history. Now, I want you to know, fill in the blank, true and false, multiple choice. That didn't happen until around 1920. This is the way tests were given. Name four Spanish explorers and state what induced them to come to America. Uh, yes. I don't have a button for that. What caused the Mexican War? What was the result? What American general commanded at the capture of the city of Mexico? Geography. Name four principal ranges of mountains in Asia, three in Europe, and three in Africa. Name ten countries of South America and the capital of each. In 1895, in Kansas, a student exiting junior high had to answer basic questions. If a load of wheat weighs 3,942 pounds, what is it worth at 50 cents per bushel, deducting 1,050 pounds for tear? Find the interest of $512.60 for eight months and 18 days at 7%. Now, understand, many of these questions had to be done without pencil and paper. They were oral exams. No calculators. I wrote this. Do you think that we would have had the lending bubble if Americans knew how to do this kind of math? It's interesting, isn't it? U.S. history. Give an account of the discovery of America by Columbus. Show the territorial growth of the United States. Now, you teachers, can you imagine writing a test like this today? Name all the republics of Europe and give the capital of each. Why is the Atlantic coast colder than the Pacific in the same latitude? All right, so what is the teacher to do? I've just demonstrated why you are experiencing the issues that you are. What should you do? First of all, you need to have a consistent worldview. You need to have a consistent worldview. That is foundationally, who am I? What do I believe? Is there truth? Does truth exist? You need to have a consistent worldview. Make sure that worldview is based in reality, i.e. the truth of scriptures. So if you're a Christian and you claim to be a Christian, take that Christian worldview with you to the classroom. Then, this, this is from Oz Guinness, A Time for Truth. It's a great statement. In each generation, the price of lying is pegged to the price of the truth which means both are held cheaply today. We need to believe in the truth. All right? What I just read to you from this book is not true. What I just read to you from the book on communication is not true. What I read to you from Robert Mueller on the foundation of Common Core and Alice Bailey, none of those things are true. So you have to have a foundation in the truth so you're able to discern what you are reading and then, it's very important, it is up to you to decide what you're going to require your student to know. That's up to you. Now, I'll tell you one of the difficulties that I know that you experience. You, get, you end up having to give your children, the, your, your pupil, an assignment. And while they're doing the assignment, you have to be entering data when you would rather be moving in and out of those rows seeing how they are accomplishing the work and teaching them. 
The other issue that comes up is some students are better at taking tests than others. How many of you recognize that? Right? Some people are better at taking tests than others. And so now we have these standardized tests that are given so much weight. And it's not only weight for the student, it's weight for the teacher, it's weight for the principal, it's weight for the school system. So the teacher says, you kids, you have to do well on this test or I'm going to lose my job. Now, you're not going to say that. I don't think you'll ever say that. But they understand the weight of all of that. So now the child is not only concerned about their future by how well they do on this particular standardized test. They're worried about what's going to happen at their school. They're worried about what's going to happen in their class. They're worried about all of those things. And this child, this child is taking this stress into a test and some children are able to dissociate themselves from the results and they can do well on a test. The other kids, they internalize the results of the test and they freeze. And so now that's a bad situation for the pupil and the teacher and the school and the school system. So here's what the teacher has to be able to do. You must, you must love that child and find a way, even though your schedule has been changed so much to require all this other data entry, that you're able to learn how that child learns and you're able to communicate the truth of the subject to that child in a way that they're able to reproduce it. We need to pray for you that you're able to accomplish that with these precious children. We need a measuring rod outside that which is being measured. You see, if I am the test of truth, then whatever I believe goes. But if God is the test of truth, then what I'm saying in the classroom is being held to a much higher standard. And so it is up to the teacher to decide what he will require of the student. It's up to the teacher to decide what she will require of the student. And I know what you're thinking. No, no, no. The national standards determine that. No, what you have to do, what you must do, is make sure that you're establishing that child in a foundation of truth before you worry about how they do on that national test. What a challenge you have. What a challenge. What a job. What a calling. It's a wonderful opportunity. And then, have a consistent worldview and be confident in that worldview. What if you get a curriculum that requires you to teach that transgenderism is okay? What if, what if that happens? I don't, I don't have any idea if that's happened here or not. What, I, I think that we have conservative people in a conservative school system. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But what if you were required to do that? What would you do? You need to decide how you would say it. You know? Okay, here's what the curriculum says. Here's what the curriculum says. I want you to I don't agree with that. This is what the curriculum says. You have to be willing to be bold enough to say those things. Children need to understand what's right and wrong. What in the world is going on with education? The most important, the most important component of a child's education is a grasp on the truth. That means the most important component of parenting and the most important component of teaching is a grasp on the truth. If there's no concept of truth, how can there ever be adequate learning? Because you're building on a pitching deck, a moving base, that in building and in construction would never be allowed, but in building a person's life seems to be required. That makes no sense, folks. 
we need to understand that the truth of the Word of God is still true. And here's the truth of the Word of God. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's what Jesus Christ said. The Bible says it this way, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you know why it's difficult to control a class? Because they're sinners. And our founders, the founders of our nation, understood that. That we are sinners. We don't believe in the innate goodness of man. We believe in the innate sinfulness of man. And that's why we have to have rules. And then that child, that structure, when that child has a structure of right and wrong and of rules and a behavior that's allowed and a behavior that's not allowed, now you have the proper basis for learning. There is so much liberty in the truth. Jesus said, if you believe on me and you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Do you know what the most important component for a teacher is? The truth, and the truth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you died today, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? Are you absolutely sure that you would go to heaven? If you were standing at the, at the gates of heaven and Jesus said, Why should I let you in? What would you tell him? Do you know the only answer that works? Because you died on the cross for me and paid for my sin. I deserve to go to hell, but you saved me. So here's my question. Has Jesus saved you? The Bible says He tasted death for every man, so He died for all of us, but at some point that has to be applied to your account. You know how that happens? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you ever placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life? If you haven't done it, do it today. You could leave here a new person. You could leave here, the Bible says, a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Hell would be your home now. If you receive Jesus Christ, heaven is your home for sure. What an exciting opportunity that is. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity to teach your word.